welcome to the Real Weird Podcast, October 23rd, The Scream Franchise. Hey everyone, welcome back, and yeah, this is one I've been looking forward to for a while now. Scream is gotta be one of my favorite horror franchises. The original is, as I said in the description, probably in my top 20 if I had to pick, you know, a top 20. Um... I'm going to be completely honest. I learned this fun little bit of trivia from another podcast. Apparently it was originally going to be called Scary Movie. Not to be confused with the parody or from the horror comedy that is going to be coming up on the second Weird Wednesday. Um, Or, well, okay, will have come out by the time this does. I'm just doing this one first because Scream is fresh on my mind. But... Funny little side note, I was one of those, <laughs> we're just going to jump right into first to the first Scream movie. Uh, not really much, not really much to talk about up front here, just because, you know, there were self-referential horror movies before and after this, it's before and when this was coming out, you know, we had... Uh, Jason Lives for the Friday the 13th movies. We had another Wes Craven movie, New Nightmare. That was actually ah, that was actually his last one, I think, before he started Scream. And again, on Weird Wednesday, you have Dead and Buried, which has references to both uh, Night of the Living Dead and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. But, you know. Um, yeah, so it's... A number of slasher movies with a lot of self-referential humor. They are, in a way, horror comedies, I guess, but they're still very heavy towards the horror end. You know, it's it's not a comedy, it's not a satire in the sense that it's like laugh-out-loud funny, but you know there's like a wink and a nod going on with a lot of the stuff they talk about in the movies. Um, you know, <laughs> they talked about the whole sin factor with the slasher movies. is like, you know, fucking or drugs is a good way to actually get yourself killed. Well, to be fair, that's to be fair when there's a to be fair when there's a homicidal maniac walking around. That is basically the case. But you know, Wes and you know writer Kevin Williamson, they were doing this. You can tell they were doing this out of love for the genre and not out of you know just dunking on every horror movie they didn't like. I've seen some people interpret the it that way, but I think that just makes Wes sound a lot pettier than he actually was. But, you know, first one opens with that famous, you know, what's your favorite scary movie line, that whole sequence. And there's a similar opening in all of the subsequent movies. Um... They did a fun little twist with the most recent one, but we'll get to that. And, you know, there's always <laughs> there's the infamous one in start of the fourth movie where it goes on for like the first ten minutes. Cause the meta horror is so late because the meta humor is so layered at that point. But the reason I talk about all this is because I was one of those poor, poor bastards that saw a scary movie before I saw Scream. <laughs> so <laughs> So it was like, when I got to it, I was like, am I the only one noticing a massive fucking tone shift here? And then I see Stu and I'm like, is that, 
Is that fucking shaggy? <laughs> but yeah, that's the great thing about it. You have the opening sequence to, you know, set up that tone. Give that hint that there's going to be that satire, that sort of meta humor going on throughout. Because, you know, you have, you know, you have Ghostface doing the little uh, quiz for his victim, you know. What was the killer's name in Halloween? She answers Michael. And then, you know, you famously tripped her up with the uh, question about Friday the 13th. And it's like, well, then you should have fucking known it wasn't Jason in the first one. It was his mom, Pamela. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. So, and then you have that line from, you know, the first victim where she's talking about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. You can... This is kind of Wes having a bit of an axe to grind here. Is like, you know, the killer is like, I love, he's like, oh, that movie is great. And she's like, yeah, but all the sequels sucked. <laughs> but yeah, you got, uh, Sin- <laughs> God damn it, Sydney, Sydney Prescott. I wanted to say Cindy, but that's the scary movie one. <laughs> Again, I saw that one first, so it's, and they're mildly similar, so I endlessly confuse them when I try to actually talk about it. You know, you've got her, you've got her boyfriend Billy, you've got Randy the film nerd, their friend, you've got Stu Mocker, and you've got a couple other people whose names are eluding elu- me right now, and I feel really bad because one of them is sister of, you know, Dewey. Uh, Dwight Riley, who's the... Uh, who's a cop... I'm sure for, I think for most of the franchise, I'm a little hazy on that. I know he was like kind of in a weird spot for two and three. And Sydney's dealing with, Sydney's going through some shit right now because, you know, a year before uh, her mother died, and there was this big hoopla about who killed her. And her boyfriend, Cotton Weary, was the one that was eventually locked up for it. Which leads to, you know, her having a sort of acrimonious relationship with uh, Courtney Cox's character, Gail Weathers. Which, I, it's been a while since I've seen the original one, so maybe I missed it. But I won, I'm starting to wonder if, like, they've made a joke about her having a name like that and not being, you know, the meteorologist. But she wrote a book basically arguing that Cotton was wrongfully convicted, which means that Sydney does not particularly like Gail. And it doesn't help that, you know, to put it bluntly, Gail for the first movie has the personality of a power tool. She is always up in everyone's business because she's trying to get her scoop. She is basically the stereotype of the nosy reporter that, you know, will make up a story if they can't get one. But... You know, there's not really much to say if you somehow haven't seen it and you haven't seen the ending and you don't know how it ends. I'm not going to spoil it, but, you know, it's it's a fucking masterpiece. It honestly is. It gave some new hope for the slasher genre, I'd say, and it showed that, you know, horror wasn't fucking dead. You could still have some fun with it. And it kind of helps that not only is it satirizing like horror movies, but as the series goes on, there's also 
there's also a case to be made that it's satirizing show business itself and, you know, the way people talk about, you know, violence in the media and the effects therein. Uh, like, we'll get to that with, you know, three. But, yeah, it's hard for me to almost really talk about it just because it's such a universally loved horror movie. Um, yeah, getting into Scream 2 was released literally the next year. It was actually, like, I was six months old when this movie came out, just to put that in perspective. But it takes place two years after the events of the first movie. Um, you know, Sydney's in college. She's trying to put the whole killings in Woodsboro behind her. The tension is set up because even though she and Gail aren't on the same, aren't quite as frosty as they were before, they still don't really like each other. Um, the twist reveal at the end of two resulted in Cotton being exonerated, so Cotton Weary's out of prison now. Um, you know, we find out that the killer, that the ghost face killer in the first one did not in fact, that he was in fact the person who killed, uh, Maureen Prescott, Sydney's mom. So obviously if they said that Cotton couldn't have been the one that did it. So it is cool as the series goes on, how it, how the satire evolves, like I said, because the first one, it's just straight slasher cliches, along with, you know, press and reporting on violent events. Uh, This one is kind of dealing with the cliches that come with uh, sequels. Uh, They actually have a little, there's a film club at the college where Randy and a couple of the new kids on the cast you know, debate whether or not sequels are just inherently worse or not. And I don't think so. There's been some, you know, obviously that it's, there's been a lot where they're at least on par. There's been a handful where they've surpassed the original in a lot of ways. Like in this movie, for example, some of the examples that they give include, you know, Terminator 2, Aliens, which, you know, one of the girls in the class just broke, brushes off as that guy having a boner for James Cameron. Um, the character, Mickey, he does bring up Empire Strikes Back, which, contrary to what Randy says, was not in fact planned, so yes, it does count as a sequel. I personally would add, I mean, obviously this came out later, so it wouldn't be in the movie, and it's not a horror movie anyway, but I would add Return of the King for Lord of the Rings series. But, you know, there's been a handful of them, a lot of times the problem with sequels is just the fact that sometimes the story doesn't feel plausible because it wasn't planned from the beginning. Sometimes you push the stakes too far to the point where the audience just kind of checks out because it's paradoxically the stakes are too high. Or sometimes it just feels like the same fucking thing on steroids. So... You know, it's hard to make a sequel plausible for some movies, unless the original one had an open ending that could be exploited for it. But, you know, those are all the issues with sequels, and they do a good job of parodying that. Um, Again, I'm not going to spoil who lives and who dies. Obviously, Sydney lives, because, you know, she's the final girl. 
so moving on to Scream 3, because this kind of continues. It's about three years after uh, Part 2. And this one actually removes itself from you know the traditional setting in a, in a way. It's actually predominantly in Hollywood. And this time the, you know, taunting ghost face opening is actually uh, targeting Cotton Weary. You know, since he's been exonerated uh, and he survived the events of 2, he is living in Hollywood with his girlfriend. He has a nice job as a somewhat uh, controversial television host. And, you know, obviously... He's killed in the opening. And the backstory here is that the Stab movies, which is the, as I mentioned, in-universe sort of parody series of Scream, it's already on its third entry that's being made. Uh, The killer is targeting cast members on it. And Sydney is kind of in a sort of self-imposed isolation to do prevent any further, you know, attacks against her. And she's sort of running this sort of uh, therapy line, I guess you could call it. But she gets pulled back into it after some external pressure between both uh, Gail, who's reporting on the murders, and Dewey, who's working as a sort of uh, consultant on the new movies. Um, You know, this one deals with trilogy cliches, as you might imagine. Uh, there's some nice little nods, like one of the cast members is theorizing that the killer was probably just some, you know, psycho fan who was upset about, uh, you know, uh, a certain character's death in Stab 2, which was a sort of meta nod to the fact that a lot of people weren't happy about a certain character in uh, Scream 2 being killed off. But I'll let you figure out who that is. Um, yeah, the... We also get some more background eventually to Sydney's mother, Maureen, in a period of her life where she left Woodsboro for a couple of years that she never talked about. Which does actually, which I'm not going to go very far into, but I'm, all I'm going to say is that it has to do with the killer's reveal, which is actually a unique killer out of the whole series in a way. Uh, if you've seen it, you know what it is, but I'm not going to say it. There's how do I put this? Yeah, there's this one was considered the weakest in the franchise by a lot of fans for a while. I personally disagree with that. I think it's at least on par with the uh, you know the re. We'll get into this term later, but the requel from 2022. But part of the reason was that they really dialed the horror down, uh, the horror and the violence, and kind of upped the comedy aspect a little bit. Not to the point where it's like a full-on comedy, but it was definitely not as violent. And part of that was just, you know, we talk about how this also just kind of satirizes how, you know, the media deals with violence anyway. But people were really crawling at people's asses about uh, violence in the media because this was like one year after the 
uh, Columbine massacre. Um, you know, if you're not in, if you're not in the U.S. and you're not um, familiar with this story, essentially a couple of, to put it over simply, a bunch, a couple of students at a high school, they just came in one day and just murdered a bunch of their classmates. And this was like, it, I'm not sure if it was like the first one, but it was definitely one of the most infamous. And a lot of people, rather than, you know, getting to the root cause of it, decided that because they were listening to like, you know, fucking Marilyn Manson or the fact that they were playing violent video games or watching violent movies was the root problem here, which, you know, it's always the... F- there's that great line at the end of the first one. Don't blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. They just make them more creative. Which, honestly, I think I feel like even that is... You know, I feel like even that's giving it too much credit because, you know, this period of world history is actually a lot less violent than a lot of previous eras. It's just we have more destructive weapons now. But, you know, I'm going to get off that before I just turn this into a politics rant. But it's also got reappraised uh, in recent years because one of the plot points that comes up is just this, like, sleazy studio head and the implication that he might have uh, done some unsavory things to some actresses back in the day. There's also a sort of fun little uh, bit of deprecating humor where Carrie Fisher is actually in it and she's playing this, um, like, secretary who acknowledges the fact that she kind of looks like Carrie Fisher and kind of insinuates that the one who got the role slept with George Lucas. And that's kind of been a theme and it kind of like ties into what I mentioned about that studio head. And a lot of people like called attention to that in recent years, just because, you know, since then we've gotten all the revelations about how much of a scumbag Harvey Weinstein was. So a lot of that's like, did Wes and, did Wes have some idea or is it just that he knew that people like this existed? I think it's probably the latter because I feel like, I don't know. I I feel like it's more just the fact that Weinstein's not the only person that did that shit. He was just one of the most blatant and that's kind of the problem. But, you know, I, I have no doubt that Wes knew that there were guys like him in show business where, you know, they use that kind of pull that they had to, you know, get away with unsavory things. But, you know, it's still the general lightness of the horror in this still means that a lot of people consider it to be the weakest entry. Um, personally, for me at least, I'd go with parts with the fourth one for that. Now, I'm going to get this out of the way, though. It's the one that has my favorite opening sequence, just because the meta humor, as I said, gets so damn layered. Um, it's a lot of, like, film-within-a-film shit going on, and to give you some ideas just how off the rails it's gotten, Stab 8 is the one that's coming out in this movie. And apparently one of the previous ones involved time travel or something. 
But obviously we get Sydney back. What's bringing her back here is that she has a book tour. And, you know, she's nearly been murdered like three times at this point. She's promoting a book called Out of Darkness about the events of the first three movies, trying to, you know, get some encouragement out there for survivors of similar trauma. Um, Dewey and Gail have kind of worked through all their relationship issues right now. So they're married. Dewey's now sheriff. Gail is trying to write her own book, but she's going more for fiction this time. We've got Jill Roberts, who's Sydney's cousin. And, you know, we get a nice little parallel to the first movie where Jill's ex comes in through the window, like sneaks into her room. Uh, not to do anything violent in that scene, but, you know, it's a nice little callback to that scene in the first movie with Billy. Um, the meta humor is updated, too, because Jill and her friend Kirby Reed, played by Hayden Penetier, they're actually watching Shaun of the Dead in one scene. Now, if the first three were respectively slasher cliches, sequels cliches, and trilogy cliches, this one could be remakes. There's also... There's the killer... No, sorry, there's the continued examination of, like, media violence again, as the killer in this one makes repeated jabs at Sydney for her, you know, success over selling the story. Uh, Dewey remarks more than once how people seem to treat the massacre almost like a fucking meme. Like, the anniversary comes up and people are, like, putting up ghost face masks on the, on the street lamps. There's an amateur reporter from the high school who's really cavalier about the events. And Gail actually enlists his help as he is also the head of the school audiovisual and cinema clubs. And I'm going to be honest, uh, Sydney has this like agent or this like publicist or whatever. She is just so fucking vapid and annoying that I was actually kind of happy when she got killed. Because she actually convinced her to exploit the more recent killings to get better sales. And one of Jill's friends actually straight up just calls Sydney the angel of death. Because, you know, it's somehow her fault that people try to murder her everywhere she fucking goes. Like I said, it's my least favorite just because there's some moments that I think were kind of unintentionally funny. And it kind of got a little... It was a little wonky. I don't even really know how to explain, but... It's definitely a worthy entry. It's definitely worthy of being Craven's final film. It's just that it feels the most formulaic out of a slasher franchise that prides itself on being, you know, self-referential and self-aware. It's it's just the horror elements were dialed back, just not in a way like three where it seemed like it was intentional. Anyway, skipping forward 11 years, we have Scream 5, or just Scream. I <laughs> I don't know why I'm kind of irritated with when there's these, like, remakes slash reboots slash sequels, or requels, as apparently we're calling them now, like Halloween or the 2011 thing, where they don't even bother to distinguish the title. 
because it means that Scream now has two movies that are called Scream. And it means Halloween franchise has three Halloweens and two Halloween 2s, even though one of the Halloweens should be Halloween 2. But, you know, no one's going to complain if you call this one Scream 5, so let's just get that out of the way. But, you know, I had my doubts about this because it was the first one that Wes was not directing. And honestly, I feel a little cheated now. If I had known it was going to be this good, I would have gone to go see it in theaters because especially it came out on my birthday. So that would have been a fun day. But it's an interesting concept, and I don't... I think the term existed prior to the movie because I was doing some reading for uh, Halloween 2018 where there's an examination of the tropes of what's called requels, which is kind of like a weird... which is kind of like a weird basically bastard child of a remake and a sequel. They're also sometimes called legacy sequels or legacy sequels. And it's usually trying to reboot the franchise with a new cast, but bringing in the old cast is, you know, maybe not side characters is a good way to put it, but like uh, secondary main. I won't spoil the ending, but the twist is really good. And Partially because they made the twist so obvious that I didn't think they'd actually go for it, so I was actually surprised when they did. But, you know, you get Dewey back, you get Gale back, you get Sydney back, you get the whole cast. And it does have a sort of through line from the original, like not even one of the sequels, it's from the original, to tie it all together. And this is, I'm not going to say much more about this, but it's interesting because it's the first, like, Scream movie where the victim in the opening sequence actually survives her attack. So that's an interesting little twist that they did there. Anyway, um, so that's the Scream franchise from Wes Craven, and I'm blanking on the names of the Scream 5 directors. I am sorry. It's just been a long day. I just saw Pearl earlier this morning, and my brain still hasn't really recovered. But I'm just going to say Scream 6 is currently in the making, or at least it's in pre-production right now. They're promising it's going to be the bloodiest of the bunch so far, and I am looking forward to that. We're getting Hayden Panettiere back as Kirby Reed. Unfortunately, Neve Campbell is not coming back as Sydney. Given the details of that, I don't I don't blame her because Sydney's in this weird spot where she is kind of like the face of the franchise, but she's also not really needed at this point anymore. Just because we've got new blood to work with. So, you know, I'll reserve judgment, but I am hyped for it. Anyway, as far as ranking these goes, hmm. well one is at the top. For me, four is at the bottom. Um, again, this is like the whole franchise is like an A minus to a flat, an A plus to like a flat B. So even the worst is still pretty good. But I'm going to say in descending order, one, two, three, and five are tied, and then four. So that's how it is for me, at least. I, everyone can like 
you know, discuss which is their favorite and which is their least favorite. Overall, I'd say it's a very, very solid franchise, um, even excluding the original. And, you know, Ghostface deserves his iconic status. And I do especially love the nice little nod to Halloween where he's credited as the voice in one of his credits, the way Michael Myers was credited as the shape a couple times. So, yeah. Anyway, that's going to be it for today. Tomorrow we are going to be going to space. We're talking sci-fi and cosmic horror. I will distinguish between the two when we get to it, but until then, I hope everyone has a safe night. Enjoy yourself. Sleep well. Hopefully no one calls asking what your favorite scary movie is. Bye.